Hey, and welcome to The Token Daily. I'm your host, Suna Amaz. Each week, we sit down with movers and shakers in crypto to discuss big ideas, both in crypto and outside of it. Everything from trends we're seeing in the space to the books we're reading lately. This podcast is presented by the folks over at Blockworks Group, a blockchain event and media production company. For exclusive content and events that provide insights into the crypto and blockchain space, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. Today, we chat with Taylor Pearson, an entrepreneur and author of both The End of Jobs and his most recent piece, which is also the topic of today's episode, Markets Are Eating the World. On the show, we discuss how blockchains will affect the concept of the firm. We also talk about the future of DAOs and tail risk as it applies to Bitcoin. Hey, Taylor. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Um, You're one of the most insightful thinkers um, I've come across in this space. Um, You had the cryptocurrency and the turkey problem we published on the Token Daily blog, and I've been following your writing for a while. And I wanted to have you on today specifically to discuss a piece that was published um, on Ribbon Farm entitled Markets Are Eating the World. Um, But before we jump in, uh, I wanted you to give a little background about um, what you've done in the space so far and what you're thinking about lately. Yeah, so you know, sort of as it relates to uh, cryptocurrency, I had uh, I was in this uh, small online forum, and in 2012, a bunch of people in the forum started posting about this thing called Bitcoin. And I think, like many people, my initial reaction was like, "This seems dumb. Uh, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense." Uh, and so I kind of ignored it. And then uh, I think that's what happened with many people as well. Sort of there's that 2013 like went up in price. I think it went up to like a thousand dollars, and it got mentioned on CNBC. And uh, I was like, oh, maybe I should like pay more attention to this and uh, and see what happens. So started reading uh, and researching and just getting more and more um, interested in the space. And then over the last uh, couple of years, I started sort of writing and uh, speaking about it more actively. And uh, one piece in specific um, that does an incredible job laying out uh, what the economy of the future could look like uh, in a blockchain-dominated world is your most recent piece, uh, Markets Are Eating the World. And I was curious if you could give us a high-level summary of you know, what exactly you walk through and, and the points you're trying to make. Yeah, so it started, I guess what I started thinking about, there was a, a paper uh, I read when I was writing my my previous book uh, called The Nature of the Firm. It's by an economist um, named R.H. Coase. Uh, and sort of his question that he poses in the paper is, you know, like if markets are so efficient, like economists believe, and this was sort of like, this is yet in the thirties, sort of like this classical, like perfectly efficient markets idea. uh, Like, why do we have firms at all? You know, why don't entrepreneurs just go out and hire contractors uh, for every task they need to get done? And so his answer was, uh, you have transaction costs. So, you know, if you want to, you know, theoretically, you could outsource every email in your inbox to someone who is more uh, experienced in you know, that specific topic. Uh, but the cost of there's um, what I call like triangulation costs or search and measurement costs. You have to go out and find that person. You have to measure their ability to do the job. Um, there's like transfer or bargaining costs. So, you know, you, now you have to negotiate a contract with them. What are their responsibilities? How much do you pay with them? And there's enforcement, uh, or sort of trust costs. How do you know they're going to actually do what they say you do? What recourse do you have, um, if they do or, or don't do it? Uh, and so firm, Coase's sort of thesis was basically firms will expand or contract, um, relative to the size of, uh, transaction costs. 
uh, in the environment they're operating in. So if you have very high transaction costs, firms will tend to be uh, very large um, and consumers will tend to want to buy things. If you have very small transaction costs, uh, firms will tend to be very small, like more uh, gig gig work kind of things. And then consumers will tend to further rent or quote unquote share. Um, and so I, I started reading about this and thinking about it sort of in the context of um, the internet. Uh, and I think it, it's very applicable to blockchain as well. Um, so sort of, if you think about um, sort of like the industrial era, um, there was compared to sort of um, the, the internet ecosystem, there was much higher transaction cost. Um, so uh, most firms tended to be large. You tend to have large startup costs. Like if you think about uh, like building a car factory uh, or some other uh, thing like that, you know, we tended to in like the, the 1950s and 60s, uh, though the industry tended to be fairly um, centralized with a few big players. Um, can you walk through the the three different types of transaction costs? Like when we talk about transaction costs being high, what are we talking about exactly? Sure. Yeah. So the three uh, the three that come up in like the economic literature, and they're sort of yeah. There's obviously a lot of flexibility here, and you can add other ones, but the three big ones are um, one I, I, I call tri- uh, triangulation cost. The, the literature they call it search and measurement cost. So the cost of you know finding the uh, good or service. Uh, and then measuring the quality of it. Um, the other one I call transfer cost in the literature. It's called bargaining cost, um, but that's the cost of like nego- you know negotiating the agreement, the the transfer of the good or service. And then the third one I call trust cost, and the literature it's referred to as uh, enforcement cost. And that's the um, the cost of you know enforcing that uh, agreement that the person will fulfill the contract. Right. And so all three of these were higher in, uh, you know, even like the web 1.0 world than we see today. Yeah. So I think, um, I guess my thesis on sort of uh, what happened and what was going on uh, was sort of in the prior to, to the industrial revolution for the most part, and I'm sort of like painting in broad strokes, but certainly if you like think back to like, you know, Greek city states or something that far back, sort of the limits of um, what I would call sort of like coordination scalability, like your ability to scale your coordination with other individuals was mm-hmm. limited to the uh, the political entity. So, you know, if you were like uh, a member of, you know, if you lived in Athens or whatever, uh, you're mostly like the, the level of coordination there was uh, limited to one political entity. And for the most part, that sort of held uh, until um, the industrial revolution. Um, and so I think what corporations were able to do and why we saw the large of these the rise of these large corporations is they were able to extend across sort of those like nation state or those political boundaries, uh, and coordinate more effectively. Uh, and that, that ended up being a very, um, economically profitable, efficient thing to do. Uh, but the cost of that was you needed to have. Uh, you had relatively large transaction costs, like the the coordination cost for managing all that um, required you to have um, big corporations as opposed to uh, to smaller ones. Um, and I think some of that, and I think some of that changes. Part of it is just that like supply chains take a long time to develop. So uh, you know, like in 1928. Uh, Henry Ford built a factory where like literally they took iron ore and rubber into one end and like cars came out of the, the other end. So like all the way from like raw goods to finished goods. And of course, like Ford doesn't do that anymore. Uh, there's like a whole network of upstream suppliers 
that produce, you know, inter- brake pads, intermediate goods that are then um, manufactured into um, finished goods. Uh, and, and a part, I think, and a big part of that was, well, uh, it turns out that uh, if you want to coordinate a bunch of activities of a bunch of different uh, individual companies or contractors or whatever, uh, computers are like a really helpful uh, helpful way to do that. So um, I'm actually, I'm reading a, a book right now, which I'm halfway through, but so far is excellent called The Dream Machine that uh, Patrick Collison uh, recommended about the history of computing. Uh, and like one of the things it's sort of talking about is, you know, computers involved, uh, so, you know, starting in the 60s, sort of the research that ARPA was doing that led to the internet was this idea of um, not computers, you know, at the time they were basically seen as like giant calculators that you might use them to do accounting or payroll, but actually what they would be really good at was sort of um, helping solve command and control problems uh, initially in the military. So um, sort of like after Sputnik and the Cuban Missile Crisis in like the late 50s, early 60s, uh, there was this big uh, crisis in the military around like, you know, how do we have, if the, you know, the president needs to make a decision in two minutes about whether to launch a nuclear bomb or not, how can we like effectively disseminate, you know, how can we coordinate the activities of you know, probably thousands of people to effectively carry out that order. And so a lot of the research they started doing on computing then was, well, okay, how can we use computers to do that? Um, and yeah, it turned out computers were like quite uh, effective at that. And so, you know, I think you, you can sort of like draw a through line from there to what we think of as like sort of um, the modern internet aggregators where what they're doing is they're just sort of enhancing uh, coordination scalability that individuals are able to um, work through them in a way more efficiently than they could through a traditional corporation. So uh, the example I like is something like 52% of uh, sales on Amazon are by third-party sellers. So, you know, it's not uh, it's not Walmart where they're stocking, uh, you know, they're picking and stocking the things themselves. They're just creating a marketplace or a market uh, with rules. And, you know, probably the most significant of those rules are being able to do customer reviews um, that people trust, trustworthy customer reviews. Uh, and so you're selling this coordination, you know, some very small business in Ohio can sell a product to someone in um, Berlin, Germany, and they're able to sort of uh, consummate this transaction and make it work because uh, they all, you know, it's got 500 five-star reviews or whatever. And I think like, well, that means it must be good. And I know that Amazon will uh, refund me if I want to you know, mail the product back because I don't like it. Um, so I guess that, that's, that was sort of the first, um, stage of, you know, how I was thinking about that the, the internet and computers more broadly, um, allow for you to coordinate things outside the firm that historically, um, had to be coordinated inside the firm. Absolutely. And then, and I think that was especially true in the web one or web two, and I hate to classify, you know, the web in phases like this, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then, and then enter blockchain. How how does this change how we think about marketplaces or, or the markets that are created that are helping with coordination scalability? What exactly changes when we introduce this? And I'm assuming some proof of work or some verification systems. So I think if you look at the internet, going back to sort of like the three types of transaction cost: uh, triangulation, transfer, and trust. Uh, the internet primarily. Uh, seems to have affected, you know, triangulation and transfer. So like triangulation, like particularly apps like um, Uber, where like everyone having a, 
a smartphone that's connected to the internet. You know, you can press pick me up now and it's like relatively easy to, to coordinate that. But you can think about, you know, as search, you know, triangulation is a proxy for search and measurement costs. Like we now have a whole industry called search, right? Like that's, that didn't used to exist, but now, um, Google obviously is an enormous company that, that just focuses on solving that one transaction cost problem related to um, search and like the measurement of the quality uh, of web pages. Uh, and then I think these sorts of like marketplaces, uh, like, like Amazon is an example, uh, did a lot to sort of like solve the, the transfer um, by just sort of like standardizing the rules of the game, right? Like if you want to be a seller on Amazon, these are the rules you have to follow. And if you're a consumer, you know that those are the rules. Um, that are being followed. Uh, I think the where that got tricky is when you saw something that was a, a very high trust um, asset or a high trust transaction. So uh, money, I think, is sort of the first example of this in blockchain where I don't, you know, if I order a sleeping mask from Amazon or whatever and I like get screwed over by the vendor, it's not that like big of a deal. Uh, but, you know, if you're storing all your wealth in some form of money uh, and you get screwed over, like all of a sudden it's a really big deal. Um, so I think, I guess the way I think about it is you sort of have all of a sudden what Bitcoin represents and what Bitcoin has done uh, is it's sort of changing this, uh, this trust parameter where, you know, fundamentally the value of the U.S. dollar today uh, is based on trust. There's no gold in the vault that backs up the dollars. Um, you know, it has value because people believe that the officials in charge of U.S. monetary policy um, will manage it responsibly. Um, and so I, the way I've sort of started to think about this is actually from, uh, it's a political economist named um, Bruce Bueno de Mesquita. He wrote a great book called The, uh, the Dictator's Handbook, which is a great title. Um, but basically his argument is that uh, sort of what affects, the reason that presidents tend to be better rulers than dictators is not because presidents are inherently uh, better people, but that they are constrained by what he calls sort of a greater selectorate. So, you know, in the case of a dictator, um, you're going to have typically a very small number of people uh, that are influencing their controls. You know, there's a dictator and there's six warlords, and it's like not that hard to coerce or force six warlords to do what you want. Um, what I think what's going on in the U.S. political system now is particularly interesting um, that it is pretty hard to like do it, it's the rules are like pretty in place. And there's a lot of stakeholders that if you have to convince 5000 people uh, in some, you know, in, in 15 different government agencies to start doing things differently, um, they, they don't tend to do them differently. So you end up getting this sort of like trade off between, um, you know, robustness and efficiency. So you can have these very, very efficient systems, right? Like a dictatorship is very efficient. And in some ways that can be, in some cases that can be good efficiency. Like sort of if you look at le what Lee Kuan Yew did in Singapore um, or, you know, also in like South Korea, uh, you basically had, a, you know, a benevolent dictator that came in uh, and got a lot of stuff done. Uh, obviously in most cases, it tends to go the other way uh, and be bad. Whereas, you know, vice versa, people sort of in the States complain about like, oh, politics here are so so inefficient and i think you know is that is that a feature or a bug in some ways uh it's a bug and in some ways potentially it's also a feature right that like you can't uh, everyone likes that their sort of their opponent's party can't get stuff done they just don't like that their party can't get stuff done but it um it goes both ways so if you think about like what bitcoin has done with money is it's enlarged that selectorate so instead of having 
uh, a comparatively smaller group of um, central bankers, um, financial executives, um, you know, whoever they know from uh, all going to Harvard together or whatever, uh, you now have a much larger selectorate of um, developers, miners, full node operators um, that make it you know, much harder to change uh, the monetary policy. And so I think that like that really changes the the way you think about the trust cost. That what what you're trusting in when you hold the U.S. dollar is very different than what you're trusting in um, when you hold a Bitcoin. Absolutely, that's an incredible point. And your, your relationship to trust, trust as we understand it, as it relates to money changes. Um, uh, pu- pulling on the smaller uh, the small selectorate thread and and how that's expanding. You specifically state. In your piece, public blockchains allow people to engage in a coordinated and meritocratic network without requiring a small selectorate. Blockchains may introduce markets into corners of society that have never before been reached. In doing so, blockchains have the potential to replace ledgers previously run by kings, corporations, um, etc. And uh, this seems to be an argument for uh, a DAO-dominated future. Of course, it's a decentralized autonomous organization, but but you don't mention DAO specifically within the piece. I was curious about language emission was uh, intentional. Are they different than what's being described or, or how do you perceive DAOs in, in this framework? I think in my mind, that's mostly like a semantic distinction. Like I think you can make, like you could make the argument that Bitcoin is a DAO, right? You know, like the miners, the full node operators, the developers, are all, um, you know, cooperating according to this uh, incentive system that was set up by um, Satoshi Nakamoto, or you could call it a blockchain. Yeah, I, I think that that is right, just depending on like, how do you want to, do you want to define DAO? If Bitcoin is a DAO, then yes, it's like a DAO-dominated future. Um, or, yeah, I think that's mostly a semantic distinction. Got it. And I think, I mean, describing it, you know, as it actually is without using the word DAO um, helps like readers that aren't already in the um, ecosystem digest and understand it better. And speaking of that, another question regarding that specific statement was when you say into corners of society that haven't before reached it, I'm curious how um, we expect those corners to participate given that there's a lot of responsibility on the user to maintain their keys and secure it. And they may not have the means um, or the education level to act as their own banks, if you will, to participate in the system. So how do, how do we see that uh, penetration of the market there? Yeah, it's a good question in the short term. And as short term, I don't, I'm not sure I have like a particular thesis about like how exactly, um, how exactly that rolls out, but I think, you know, like in the long term, like pe- like people get to choose to make trade offs, um, and you know, like you don't if you would rather you know leave all your money uh, in Venezuelan bolivars because you don't want to manage your private keys, like that's your prerogative, uh, and no one's forcing you to do it. Um, so I think I think it, it more just becomes a, a question of like necessity, like if you know if. Um, you know, in the case of like, you know, maintaining your Bitcoin keys or whatever, your, your sovereign money keys, uh, like, yeah, if it's, if it's worth like having that money not being stolen or like inflated away, like, I think people will, uh, will figure it out. But like, I think, yeah, there's lots of like use cases where like, you don't really care. Uh, and I'm like happy to trade off, um, you know, my own control for just like the convenience of it because it doesn't really matter. So I just, yeah, I guess my assumption is just that, um, People like people will eventually, and like 
probably will not make them like rationally or anything like that, but like people will be able to make that, um, that trade off however they want. Uh, and like over time you'll, I would expect like some sorts of like standards, uh, would emerge around like, you know, like this is a re- you know, these are the reasonably intelligent ways to do it. And even like, uh, I think, I feel like that's even happened, you know, like the penetration of like hardware wallets now versus 12 months ago, like people are learning how this stuff works and getting better at it. Absolutely. It, and, and speaking of making, uh, uh, trade-offs and like your actual choice to participate in the system do you think it'll eventually all be uh on the blockchain or or do you see a, a parallel system where like fiat coexists with this um more uh like automated democratic like ledger that expands beyond a small selectorate uh yeah i mean i think I think fiat will exist for a long time. I don't think we're anywhere near like a, you know, the next three years fiat's going to go away or anything like that. Like mm-hmm. if it ever goes away many, many decades into the future. Um, I think, and I think it's really in my mind, like Bitcoin is sort of a, um, there's never been a, you know, talking about introducing markets into corners of society. There's never been a free market uh, for money. Like this is sort of like a big trope that I feel like the Austrians are always talking about. And there's, I think there's a quote from Milton Friedman, you know, something around like maybe someday someone will figure out some way to create sort of a, um, a market for money. Uh, but you know, that that's what cryptocurrency is, right? Like it's a market of all these different, um, projects, people trying to create, uh, a different form of money. And now I totally lost your question. Forgot what it was. Oh, it, it just in that, you know, would fiat and a cryptocurrency be working in parallel? Uh, do people, in order to participate in the economy, do you foresee them having to opt in to um, a digital currency to participate in this ledger, or do you assume a world where you know both fiat and and this digital currency exists? Yeah, I, I guess I think both will exist. And like presuming uh, cryptocurrency continues to grow, I think it will act as sort of just a competitive force uh, in the market for money. Uh, and I think I guess in in my mind, that's like sort of what I read as like. Um, you know, should the sort of Satoshi embedding the uh, the time story uh, about uh, the bailouts in like the Genesis block is like this is in a way I think like Bitcoin is a fork of the monetary system, right? Saying mm-hmm. like yeah. uh, I want I want an alternative uh, form of money. So I think those yeah I think they will continue to coexist uh, for a long time, um, and yeah, and, uh, presumably at some point. Um, you know, maybe one of them becomes dominant, but I think that's that's a long way away. I agree. I, I like that positioning. Uh, Bitcoin is a fork from um, our current monetary system. In, in this futuristic world, uh, it reminded me of, I was listening to a, a talk that Balaji gave at Stanford. And he was talking about how when we talk about the unbanked, we think about a group of people um, that are underserved, but what we don't uh what we aren't talking about is another group, and that's machines, um, similar to how we have IP addresses now. In, in the beginning, we used to have telephone numbers, and those were tethered. And if you had to access it, you'd, you'd have to actually call somebody up. Um, but now we have IP addresses. And similarly, we are now attaching these uh, keys to act, whereas like we don't have to phone in our bank or be, have to actually transact with some third party. Uh, there'll be machine payments. And then 
I, I guess the way that I'm relating it to your piece is I'm curious in this futuristic world, do you believe payments to be made? Are they going to be machine to machine or are they going to be just machine instigated? So, so I guess the real question is, is it an IoT world or is it just a better automated version of the world we have today? I guess my assumption is it's some combination of the both of the two. I've heard uh, you know, Andreas Antonopoulos has an interesting talk he gave about sort of this idea of uh, like streaming payments. So like, you know, you take the example that um, you're getting in a uh, self-driving car and you you want to go across town uh, and maybe you have, uh, you know, you have an option of like, do you want to go slow, medium or fast? Uh, and if you go fast, you know, the ride's going to be $30. And if you go slow, it's going to be $10 and you're able to, you know, take, you know, you can pay the cars ahead of you to let you buy if you want to go fast, because those people are, uh, are happy to go slow and only pay $10, mm-hmm. uh, instead of $30. I think it's like an interesting, interesting thought experiment that you could engage in those trans, like those sort of like micro transactions in that way. Um, yeah. And what the new use cases look like, but yeah, I'm not. That's a good question. I'm not exactly sure. Like, I think there's probably some distinction. Like, what are the thresholds? Right. Uh, where that makes sense, and I guess, I guess my impression right now is that in the short term, sort of like the smart contract code is law thing is probably overrated, but probably underrated in the long term. Absolutely. Uh, definitely uh, pulling on uh, Amara's law, where like we. Uh, overestimate what technology can do in the short term, but to underestimate what it can do in, in the long term. Um, of, of the three transaction costs um, between triangulation, trust, and transfer costs, in your opinion, what will be most affected by blo- by the use of blockchains and, and what's going to be the least affected? Uh, I think I think trust is definitely the most. Like I think that's the one that sort of sticks out. Um, probably triangulation the least I guess I, I think there's the interesting thought experiments about like search on the blockchain, like what happens when you have all this data that's uh, uh, fully transparent. Um, but that, that seems like very far away. Uh, I guess the example I've heard that I thought was really thought provoking was the idea of like um, like a self liquidating bank that sort of like uh, you know it's a bank that borrows shorts uh, borrows short and lends long, uh, and then the moment it becomes insolvent. Uh, just uh, sort of like dissolves itself, right? There's this like perfect transparency and that it can see like exactly what, uh, you know, all its assets and all its liabilities are uh, in real time, you know, like per, you know, basically almost like perfect search and measurement cost. Um, it seems like the one of the distinctions here that makes sense to me is you sort of have like three tiers. You have, uh, you know, like meat space and like digital and then blockchain, and so like, it's very easy. Like if something, if we have a transaction on like the Bitcoin blockchain, like our ability to like verify and trust and measure it is like very high. Uh, like there's like, I have a lot of trust that if, um, you know, you send me uh, 0.01 BTC that like that went through or whatever. Uh, digital is like probably like one step down. Like it's comparatively easier to measure that. So like maybe as you have more and more sort of like internet of things, use cases, um, like the example I've heard that's interesting is like, uh, you know, if, for crop insurance, a farmer has, you know, 5,000 different censures um, all over his farm or her farm um, in some way that you know, the, it, it increases the trust cost. It increases the selectorate, right? Like you could, you could try to like hack all 5,000 uh, IOT censures, but like maybe that like spreads it out enough um, that it becomes like more trustworthy. But yeah, yeah, yeah I guess. The risk, yeah. 
Yeah, which I think is like really interesting. But again, it seems like that's quite quite a ways off uh, if it ever comes. Well, and uh, this this may or may not um, be a continuation of, of that line of thought. But you talk in your piece, you describe how ledgers facilitate coordination on the monetary level, and then you say can expand. They can expand and move on to corporate and social ledgers. And I'm curious what that means to help coordination on a social level as it pertains to blockchains. If you think about like, um, uh, so I used to, I worked with a company, uh, this would have been like 2012 ish. Um, it was a small manufacturing business. Uh, they were had a headquarters in San Diego. Um, they manufactured in China. Um, they had a development team in Eastern Europe. They had a marketing team, uh, in different parts of Asia. And it was at the time, maybe like a 15 or 20 person, uh, startup. Um, and so like, I guess that level, you think about like that, that level of coordination was like only possible, um, uh, sort of like post internet, like, like the fact that, you know, think about like you're trying to get manufacturing done in China, like Skype was a huge deal like, to go. Like before that you were literally faxing, uh, faxing back and forth, like product diagrams, um, to China or emailing them back and forth eventually. Yeah. Uh, but the fact that you could like get on a video call and like walk the manufacturer in China, like through how you wanted the product to be manufactured, um, like that, that changed the sort of corporate ledger that all of a sudden you could have a, a 15 person company that could like get these sorts of like global efficiencies, uh, that like previously had been reserved for, for large corporations. Um, and I think, um, having talked with some people that were, you know, doing manufacturing in China earlier, like, uh, the, the minimum water quantities used to be like, you know, in the mid, you know, certainly like 2000, even like by the mid two thousands, like most minimum water quantities, like $500,000. So like you had to have $500,000, uh, just like anything done. And like now those minimum water quantities are, uh, like $5,000 or in some cases, um, even lower. And I think a lot of that is just sort of like, um, some of it's just like increase, like better, um, better manufacturing technology, like uh, a lot more people at Chinese manufacturers speak English now and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then a lot of it too, I think is the sort of like internet um, technology enabled stuff. So yeah, you think about that um, as it relates to uh, cryptocurrency, like what happens when we like reduce this trust cost? Like what are the sort of like new use cases in terms of like how you can organize work that become possible? Mm -hmm. Oh, I see. And, and then, and then you take it one step further and you mentioned something called, uh, the nation state ledger and, and I'll give you a little background or a little context about what I thought when I initially read the nation state ledger, it re was reminiscent of, um, uh, the like China social crediting system. I was recently listening to, uh, Amy Webb's podcast on econ talk and she talks about a scenario where, uh, you know, China pilots its social crediting system with its one belt, one road countries, they eventually only do business with people who are participating in the social crediting system that they have. Um, and if you're not part of that system, even resistant countries would eventually have to participate in order to participate or they, or they have to participate in the um, social crediting system or they'd be locked out of the global economy. 
And that was a dystopic view that was painted for me when I read uh, Nation State Ledger. And it may not be that at all. But I'm curious what you mean when you talk about the Nation State Ledger. Yeah, so uh, like economists sometimes refer to firms as like a nexus of contracts. So like mm-hmm. you could think about Google as a nexus of contract, right? It has a, a contract with the users in terms of like the quality of the search results and how it displays those search results and the page rank algorithm and all that. It has contracts with employees for how, you know, how they're employed. It has contracts with investors, um, for, you know, how that investment is managed. Uh, and, you know, that network of contracts is like a very valuable network of contracts. And I think you could think about nation states is the same way. Like, you know, the constitution is a particular contract, the, uh, the bill of rights, like all these are, um, the nation state is, uh, a nexus of contracts. Uh, and so like what, you know, to what extent is it possible to, uh, to like change the way, uh, those contracts are written. And I think, uh, I guess to what extent is sort of like the nation state ledger, as we think about it now, sort of a product of, um, the tech, like the technology era, uh, of the industrial revolution. Um, and there's a book, um, called the sovereign individual, which I suspect has been mentioned before, uh, that is sort of, a. a on a hardcore libertarian take on what this might look like, but seems to have gotten uh, a lot of things right. That like part of what seems to be different about uh, digital technology is um, there's sort of, and particularly I think cryptography, this idea of like the defender's advantage uh, is very interesting to me. So like, if you think about like Silk Road as an example, um, you had uh, this like not that sophisticated individual that like didn't really know what he was doing, but using like relatively basic cryptography um, was like, he, I mean, he was never, the cryptography was never cracked by law enforcement officials. He like, like eventually found he had like posted some form under his old email address and they were able to figure out right. um, who he was or whatever. But like, even when there were like people at you know, the FBI that were very sophisticated that were like trying to get this at the time. I think he was like a 25 year old kid that like taught himself to code three years earlier uh, and was like able Coding to, he was like effectively able to resist library. them. Right. Right. Um, so yeah, I think that that's like an interesting question to me about like what does, um, what does it look like when you have that sort of like defenders uh that like to finish advantage in, uh, in terms of like nation states. So like the idea of like digital feudalism, mm. um, like do we end up in a, an environment that's like much more, uh, like, yeah, m- much more like feudal in a way or like city state based in a way, as opposed to, um, like sort of like the big nation states. And I think there's some data, but like the number of, the number of nation states has been increasing for like 40 ish or 50 ish years. Um, so sort of like, like Balkanization was like one of the big ones, right? Like sort of the breaking up of the Balkans. Uh, but I think that there's something like 50% more countries now than there were, uh, 40 years ago or something. So, you know, how many, what do we, what do we end up with, uh, in a hundred years? Oh, that's incredibly interesting. Okay. So as it relates to, um, the state itself and its citizens, there's like more of a self-contained, not as ledgers between nation states are concerned. Right. And I, and I think, I guess another part of that too, is sort of like the portability of capital. Like it's running a, uh, you know, f- running a Ford factory, a car factory is like fundamentally different than running a software company. Right. Uh, like you just can't, you can't pick the factory up out of Detroit and like move it somewhere else. 
uh, it's like, there's just like way more cost associated with that. Whereas like, I think in like, Bin- like what Binance has done has been really interesting, right? Like uh, it's like not that if you run a cryptocurrency exchange, like it's not that hard to move to Malta or certainly comparatively much easier than it is to like move a Ford factory to Malta uh, because like the costs don't change that much. Like you don't have to, you know, you're not shipping the cars and container ships um, over the ocean, right? Like you're just sending packets of data um, and cryptocurrency around the world. So, so in your opinion, what, what time frame are we looking at for like web three, um, or this like blockchain dominated web to achieve the potential that you're outlining in your piece? And, and I guess what can, what can we do to accelerate that process? Uh, I guess it's like the, so my sort of thesis, at least on like the web three stuff is like, that's, that's a really long, that's, that's a much farther way out. Like sort of the, the consumer stuff, like the, the, the DeFi, like the higher trust pieces, like finance seem like a little bit more, like people are willing to put up with more, uh, you know, worse user experience and, and more, um, higher transfer costs and transaction costs there because of the the cost but like the you know thinking about like streaming payments or some of the, the sort of like farther out things like uh you know decades mm. uh away seems yeah a, a decade two decades three decades something on that order of magnitude and what are like the biggest efforts you see that are going needed to push it forward is it just you know uh is it a UX problem or um, is it more of a trust in this new technology problem combination of the two other things that we haven't listed? Yeah, I think, I think it's all those. I mean, I think everyone sort of like knows what the the problems are. Yeah. I think it's the UX is a problem. Scaling is a problem. Um, education is a problem. And I think it's probably not one that's like, this is the clear thing that's going to like make everything go over, I think. Right. But um, it, yeah, it's the classical blockchain problems <laughs> as we, as we understand. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I am copying this from um, our friend Tyler Cowan, but I wanted to do a little segment where I got your opinion on if this is underrated or overrated. Um, and I want to start with income sharing agreements in a blockchain world, um, specifically tokenizing people or letting people, you know, buy tokens in you. Uh, is that underrated or overrated? Uh, underrated. I think, I think the incentive properties are interesting there. Like if a, if company, if a college was based on your education was based on like your future incomes, like it changes the, the incentive for like what they're actually teaching you. And, and another buzzword we've seen, uh, floating around recently uh, is a uh, modern monetary theory overrated or underrated. Uh, overrated. Uh, I guess my thinking on this topic is, is mostly driven by a book called, uh, seeing like a state, uh, by James C. Scott. And I think the subtitle is something like why uh, plans to perfect the world have, why many plans to perfect the world have failed. Um, and he draws this distinction beca- between uh, what you might call like uh, um, traditionalism and high modernism is sort of the thing he calls out. So if you look at sort of across the right and the left, um, these ideas of like, you have some central planner and he's going to come and look at some fundamental messy reality I'm going to say like, oh, well, this is inefficient. I can make it more efficient uh, and impose my like top-down will uh, on it and make the whole thing work because I see how the system works. Um, that tends to end badly. So like Brasilia is an example of like where this like didn't work out with the city. Like you, any, most people would much rather live in like Paris or New York or somewhere that had like a very bottom-up. And even though it looks sort of like messy on a map or to a central planner, they sort of like lived experiences 
um, is much more vibrant or like you look at like what happened with, um, you know, Stalin um, and the Ukraine and the famines, right? It's like, oh, we're going to like impose this like top down um, more efficient system. And so I guess modern monetary theory to me just looks like another iteration of that same project that we're just going to, oh, we've got this sort of like brilliant thing and we know how it all works um, and we're going to impose it on people. And I guess my view is much more colored by what makes much more sense to me is sort of um, what Friedrich Hayek talked about, this idea of like, uh, you have information that is dispersed throughout the economy and like what a market, a market is able to aggregate all that information in the form of a price, right? So, you know, you can look at any moment, you can see what, you know, the price of a barrel of oil is trading at and you have um, like, you know, many thousands, probably more than thousands of like different actors, which are like trying to gather information uh, about the state of the oil market. And like that is all sort of like ultimately being uh, reflected in the price. Uh, interesting. And uh, speaking of like schools of thought, uh, what are your thoughts on Austrian economics? Overrated or underrated? Uh, overrated by the hardcore Austrians, underrated by everyone else. Oh, good distinction. I like that nuance. <laughs> we can leave it there. Um, how about uh, DeFi or uh, what are the youth saying now? Dopefi? <laughs> uh, yeah, I see in the short term, like next few years, it seems quite overrated. Uh, Long term, like 10 to 20 years, probably underrated. And why underrated in the, in the long term? Um, I think I guess the way I think about DeFi is uh, it's like the the long tail phenomenon we saw with uh, the internet, but spread to finance. Um, so like what what happens when you get um, permissionless innovation with finance? So that finance, like so one interesting uh, example that I think about is uh, I have a friend uh, who previously sold a company. Um, is like done well financially, uh, has another company that he can like draw money from, da, da, da. but when he was 21 years old, he like didn't pay off a credit card uh, in college. And so his like credit score sucks. So he like can't get a mortgage. Uh, he, can, you know, he can't get a, a line of credit for his business. He can't get, uh, he can't get a mortgage. Um, it's like that to me seems just like a fundamentally like very inefficient market, right? Like someone should step in uh, and, and like create some sort of, you know, you should be able to create some custom credit scoring process on like, okay, uh, you know, you've got a, a business that uses Stripe as a payment processor. We're going to, we're going to monitor your uh, Stripe payments and, you know, we can lend to you against that. Like, you know, that's another way you could like assess someone's credit worthiness than one, um, than one credit score. Um, and that, that doesn't exist right now. I'm, I'm not sure why, and I'm not sure like necessarily, um, blockchain is the answer, but the idea of like permissionless innovation in finance uh, seems like very compelling to me that you could have this like long tail of finance. And I think and even like um, security tokens, for example, this like, what if, you know, every small business in the United States was like tokenized uh, and tradable, or, you know, the, the owners could make it tradable within some certain group of like whitelisted individuals or something. Um, like that seems, that seems very compelling to me. Absolutely. I agree. It's just, it it seems incredibly archaic and it seems as though the burden in trying to push along um, any innovation or process or funding um, has been 
draconian and, and it's long time coming. So I think uh, crypto will definitely facilitate this. And that actually brings me to my, my next question, which is actually one of your questions. <laughs> but uh, you'd asked um, recently, uh, which professions will be first slash most affected by crypto? And then you get the analogy, like the internet is to journalists as crypto is to blank. And I was curious what the best answers you received were and what, what professions people ended up uh, choosing or thinking were going to be affected? Uh, central bankers was probably the best uh, example I got. I mean, I guess if you're thinking of it, like money is sort of the, the primary use case uh, and maybe for quite some time, like something that's being affected by sort of the idea of um, creating a free market of money seems like the most, uh, the most compelling thing. Is there anything that surprised you or do they all seem predictable and they're all like more in the financial services? Yeah, I guess most of the ones I found compelling were like in the uh, financial services, gold miners. I don't know, like do you end up, does, does Bitcoin eat part of the market for uh, oh, gold and affect gold? Um, like I guess offshore banking is like another interesting one. Like if are, mm-hmm. do people really want offshore banking or do they just want some form of like censorship resistant wealth? Uh, like maybe, you know, maybe part of that market uh, gets eaten. Right, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think it, that uh, argument is incredibly compelling to view it specifically as it relates to money. Really curious to see if we end up seeing something um, uh, along the like reputation and uh, identity vertical, or even you know, there's this. Uh, group called collectibles maximalists within the nft community and so you know you could even argue like uh you know archivist like memorabilia <laughs> will uh will be rolled up into nfts right that's interesting yeah so i mean it's still anybody's game and we're incredibly early so trying to you know read the tea leaves i think is it's a fun thought exercise um but of course uh, can be incredibly accurate. But taking it back to on a monetary level, I, I know that you are thinking about tail risk uh, in traditional markets and, and how that could apply to um, what we're seeing in a post-Bitcoin world. And I, and I wanted to know if you, you want to speak a little bit more about that and what your thoughts are there. Yes, I think one of the questions that uh, the Bitcoin kind of raises, or uh, maybe it tries to answer, is we're in the middle of this like pretty interesting uh, monetary experiment um, where, uh, f- you know, since 19, I forget, 72, 73, Nixon took the US off the gold standard. Uh, and now, you know, exists in sort of this like purely credit system uh, of money. And so if you look back at um, the research I've read is uh, from the book Debt by David Graeber and talks about, you know, historically there are two types of money. One is commodity money, which is something, you know, it's based on a commodity, gold being sort of the most uh, common or most popular historically. Uh, and then some sort of like credit money, um, which is uh, where we are now. And historically, every sort of uh, credit money regime has ended up with um, either a debt jubilee or some sort of like uh, devaluation of the money because you end up you end up generating uh, basically political risk uh, that you know if you have you know if you're in ancient Mesopotamia or whatever and you know one percent of the uh, population owns a bunch of the debt that everyone else owes uh, like you know the ninety nine percent of people just go oh, I guess we can just like kill them or or take them over or whatever and get done so you end up you know sort of like generating this political tension. Um, and I think, you know, it, it seems like there's an argument that we're seeing something like that happening uh, again right now, that what happened with um, quantitative easing and the printing of money was this like inflation in asset prices. 
uh, you know, but the S&P is up, I don't know, it's like 300%, uh, maybe more. Anyway, has huge, huge inflation in asset prices uh, that's like led to this inequality because, of course, you benefited from the rise in asset prices where the people that already owned um, a lot of those assets. So like, is that, you know, to what extent is that creating sort of tail risk? And I think the, the sort of central bank experiment and this like modern monetary theory experiment is this idea that like, well, we can just sort of like reduce the volatility um, in markets and just make things sort of constantly go uh, up and to the right. Uh, and I think what typically happens is, you know, volatility tends to cluster. Mm-hmm. So you have these periods of, uh, you know, punctuated equilibrium of like long periods of like relative stasis. And that you know, typically the, the longer that period of, of stasis, the more sort of violent or, or strong the reaction is. So we've had a very long period of, uh, of relative stasis. So there, there may be uh, a lot of volatility that's built up. Uh, that hasn't been expressed and that will be expressed at some point in the future. Whether or not we're in a fiat world or um, are you saying this delayed volatility uh, comes to light uh, with the, like with more of this mainstreamification of Bitcoin or are you saying this is inevitable just a matter of when, when it happens, whether that's on the emergence of Bitcoin or that's fiat collapse then Bitcoin. Yes, I may think like fiat collapse Mm -hmm. leading to, you know, hyper-Bitcoinization would be like an example of that volatility coming out. Mm -hmm. Uh, That uh, if if the monetary policy had been managed more responsibly, you know, if if you're in that world and you're like looking back, like you can probably say like, oh, like if if the bankers had done this, if we'd managed monetary policy um, in a more responsible way, like we could have avoided this. Uh, we could have avoided this outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, and, and, you know, potentially that's what happens. Like, you know, maybe it, it, it does just create pressure and uh, things get managed in a more responsible way. Um, but I guess it, it seems like that's that's politically unlikely. There's a lot of like, uh, it, it, it's in no one's short-term political interest to do that. Right. Uh, and so like the can just keeps getting kicked further on down the road. Uh, and, you know, eventually someone's going to get stuck holding the, the, the hot potato or going to get stuck when the music stops. Absolutely. Th- thank you so much. Um, we're, we're running up in, on the hour, but this is an incredibly enlightening conversation. Um, and we'll link to the piece for our listeners who want to check out um, uh, why markets are eating the world. Thank you, Taylor. Really appreciate having you on today. Thanks for having me. Thanks to everyone for listening. Hey, everyone. Suna here. If you liked this episode of The Token Daily and want to help us take crypto to the top of Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, then please do us a favor and rate, review, and smash that subscribe button. To leave a review, simply go to the Token Daily homepage and scroll down until you see five blank stars. Taking a few seconds to fill those stars in and leaving a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. Thanks again for choosing to listen to The Token Daily. I'll see you next time.